is JudoCast. We go to the mat and beyond with some of the most prominent minds in judo. Please welcome your host, a two-time Pan American champion, entrepreneur, and judo enthusiast, Chuck Jefferson. Welcome back to episode six of JudoCast. This is part two with Justin Flores. We're going to jump right back into things as Justin discusses how he worked his way up the ladder of MMA coaching, starting with some small events on the East Coast and how he quickly found himself cage side at the UFC coaching his longtime friend Ronda Rousey at some of the most iconic sporting events in MMA history. Later in the episode, we'll have some fun talking about the Olympics coming back to Los Angeles with hopes of Team USA becoming medal contenders in 2028. So let's get right back to it. So aside from coaching the national team in recent years, you've pretty much spent the last 10 years coaching athletes from all different kinds of grappling disciplines. And this path has obviously led you to some pretty big things. And uh, you were able to end up working as a coach for Ronda Rousey when she was on her rise to become the UFC champion. So what can you tell us about how all of that came to fruition? And uh, what can you tell us about your family connection to Ronda? Yeah. So my dad is actually Ronda's godfather, And her mom, okay. uh, he just had Anne Marie on uh, the last couple of days. Right. And so they were best, yep. they were like great friends growing up in the judo community in, in Southern California. Uh, at Henry and Jean LaBelle being kind of their coach. And so, so when Anne Marie and Rhonda and the, their family moved back to Southern California in the late nineties, uh, the mid to late nineties, like 97, I think, you know, they, their first point of contact in the judo community was our family. So at this point, right. I, I think Rhonda was maybe 11, 12, maybe. Okay. And I had met her previous to that, but, this was like, okay, this is the Ronda Rousey that became a judo champion that, that my brother and I kind of helped mentor and mold. Uh, so, sure. so she was around sleeping on our couch for weeks on end, uh, coming and going Her mom, just, you know, dropping her off and you would just treat her like one of the dudes in training, you know, cause we need to get our workout. So, but she was one of those never say die. It goes out the door. She'll keep going. She's crying blood coming out of her nose she still does it just never would end so you know yeah. i never i never really would oh hey, are you okay you know you're just uh, you know i didn't let that ever stop the the, the 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 rounds that we would do we would go hard i would go hard i would get what i needed she get what he needed she needed and you know it's mutually beneficial and growing up with with me as a, a main training partner my brother uh, I think really gave her some of that grit where she could, no matter what, never break. And she never would. It, it was crazy. I mean, she would break by crying. She, you know, she would cry all the time. But sure. But she, she didn't she stop. Never <laughs> stopped. Never. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only right. thing that would stop it is the, the whistle or the round being over, which she would usually then go after and keep going and say, let's go again. It's like, okay. So, so, so me and her have been close forever. Our families were close forever. And after the 2008 Olympic trials, I, um, I moved out to the East Coast. I was out in the East Coast, and my wife, my wife got a job with Merck Pharmaceuticals. As she's a chemical engineer. She's the brainiac of, of the group of me and her. And she, I moved with her and, you know, was kind of trying to find my, my place in the world. You know, I have all these skills. I'm so well-traveled. I, I've done all these things in, in two sports, and I can jump rope really well. Uh, but I really, there's no way, there's no way that really fits in a modern capitalism. So I really had a hard right. time finding my way. So the first job I got, I was, I was working at a, a little pizza place with a, a 17 year old boss and I was busing and it was really kind of pride swallowing. I'm cleaning messes. I'm just a grunt and I'm 28 at the time. And, uh, I found online uh, that there was an MMA gym a couple miles down the road. So I uh, send them an email. I'm like, I have all these credentials, yada, yada. But to an MMA gym, you know, judo at the time, other than maybe Caro Parisian, it's kind of almost irrelevant. Other than a few little 
specs of success in the, the MS, MMA sphere. And, you know, I started getting involved in utilizing wrestling in my teaching and judo in my teaching. And within about a year, uh, I really found my place a little bit. I was cornering low-level amateur fights in the regional Philadelphia circuit, maybe a dozen of them. Right. And, but I was starting to understand, you know, it's a gritty sport and a little bit, it's less true to the mar- essence of martial arts for sure. But nonetheless, there's, you know, there's a place for me that where I could utilize these years of training and I could help shape others. And during this time, sure, there was, there was no world beaters there. I got to work with a few, you know, future, future, uh, UFC and Bellator fighters, but nothing that, that I got into later. So, uh, at this point, it's like 2009 or 10, maybe 10, uh, Rhonda's starting to fight and, um, she's getting a lot of success. It's like a, this smaller amateur promotion in Vegas. And then she, she moves up to strike force and I start, uh, me and my brother and a couple others, her mom, my dad, we all start going to her strike force fights and I become, you know, a little bit intertwined with, with her rise. You know, I'm training with her when I'm around. And I, I, I fly out to California before one of her, her fights. I think it's Karen Man, who's a couple fights into her UFC career. And then mm, my wife gets a job at Genentech here in Southern California, and we move out uh, back to my roots here in San Diego. And so right away, I start making my trips up to LA. I'm part of like her team as a, a judo wrestling grappling coach. And at the same time, I'm starting to teach judo at studio 540 in, in san diego and i had you know at that point not really done jujitsu so to speak as far as like i had rolled with a lot of great jujitsu people but i had never been classically trained in right. the brazilian jujitsu discipline so i start training a little bit jujitsu cross training it and understanding you know the dynamics of guard guard passing the elements that you know that i think apply most in mma at least so I'm able to kind of fuse my, my learning, working knowledge with that into my wrestling and judo to make me a little more well-rounded. And uh, I think that really helped because sure. JJ Ronda different looks from, from guard, and I was able to, to use my wrestling and judo all together with her, and it didn't go unnoticed. So at that point, I had only really right. been coaching Ronda. There was no one else. And within maybe a year, I had a dozen or so UFC, Bellator and professional MMA fighters that are like, help me be a champion. And I'm like, okay, I don't really have a blueprint, but let's work on this. So your grappling experience as a whole has obviously caught the attention of a lot of high level athletes and, you know, working with Rhonda clearly opened up a lot of doors as far as that goes. But I think some really good experience that you gained as not only an athlete, but a coach and, and even your years, you know, working with Rhonda behind the scenes has given you like an understanding of the bigger picture of the pressures that athletes face at that level. So you've coached, you've competed at the biggest judo events, including the world championships, you know, maybe the Paris Grand Slam, some amazing venues like, you know, Bercy Stadium. But I could only imagine the feeling of coaching Ronda cage side in front of 60,000 fans and millions more at home. Like, what was that like? Uh, so, yeah, it's nuanced because there was, there were such high highs and such low lows. And that's kind of that, unless you kind of detach from the emotion of it, it's kind of the way it goes. I mean, that was kind of a, a full on poem, I guess, but uh, sure. it, it is. And, and I, I saw those highs and early it was, it was, it was a roller coaster ride. I mean, I remember pummeling with Rhonda at the Staples arena and looking at, you know, in the, the warm up room, looking at the screen behind us and pummeling. And that's, the cage at that very moment and on the the pay-per-view i'm like wow that's kind of insane okay i'm just gonna be normal here warming up no big deal and then that first time this was uh after a couple times corner but that first walk i ever did with her i don't think i've ever maybe being born you see that bright of a light but i just remember walking and being (laughs) like wow that is like a rebirth right there that there's something to be said about like the energy that gets to that very moment not only with her song playing in the crowd yeah. but just like the gravity of the situation and I the first few times I had a hard time like okay 
I got to keep my composure because I have to like say something profound or, or maybe something that could change the course of the fight. But the more and more I corner, the less I think that should be. I think it's more about the road, the training, the camp that leads to that moment rather than anything that's said cage time. You know, maybe the warm up, those things are important, but the work's already done. Uh, so, but at the time, yeah. I, it was it was a lot to handle, and you know, it was a whirlwind. I, I you know, because at that time, I think it was 2015 or 2014. Uh, you know, she was a phenomenon. Uh, you know, I remember meeting Arnold Schwarzenegger, A Rod, uh, Holly Berry. Um, there was people that just wanted to meet her, and we, Vin Diesel. These people were just like, okay, they're they're right. sitting in our room with us, and we're all bullshitting. You know, it was just surreal. Yeah. And, you know, like your Dana Whites of the world and uh, Lorenzo Fertitas. I remember after probably the biggest fight that Ronda won, but probably her zenith, her peak, was in Rio. She she beat Betch Cohea, who, you know, wasn't the, the best fighter she had fought, but right. deserved to be there nonetheless. And, and just the gravity of that situation where, you know, there was so much emotion because the crowd and it was in Brazil and Betch Cohea's Brazilian and then. Uh, there was like all this hubbub before the fight about suicide and, and, and her, you know, Rhonda's father committed suicide and Petschko had touched on that in a way that was like, okay, dude, this girl deserves to be down. But, uh, yeah, besides that, but it was just, it was, it was heavy and we spent think, three weeks in Rio before that fight just to acclimate and train at the right time because the fight was at, I think, 2 a.m. due to the time change. There's a four hour time change. So, yeah, I think it was at 2 a.m. So, you know, we were training later and later, getting acclimated, and just the hordes of people that were surrounding, you know, the hotel lobby. And we basically, I felt like we were escorting, Air Force One was going to meet us and get us to safety at every turn. And, <laughs> and I remember Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta after that fight, we spent the whole night in this closed off uh, this club in, on the beach in, in Rio. That was just like for about 15 people and, and everything was just like the hype, you know, it, it seemed like anything was possible at that point. Like yeah, the way everyone was talking, the way, just the, the frequency yep. everyone was operating on, uh, it almost seemed like it would last forever. Like, yeah, bring on another one. It's going to be the same. And I, it almost, I, looking back, I feel yeah. a little bit like I was complacent. Like I, there were things that could have been tweaked or changed to, to steer the course of history in another way because that was her last win. And, you know, sure. at the time, you would have never thought that six months later, her fight in Holly Holm, that that would have taken the turn it did. So, you know, there's there's ups and downs yeah. to the whole thing. And I, I'll cherish all those experiences. You know, it was really hard to see, you know, someone, a sister of mine that I'd known for a long time. And you were on a lot of these trips with Rhonda. I remember sitting at the same table with you, me and Rhonda at some of these European trips and South American trips. So, so, you know, like, right. you know, seeing her get, you know, flatlined, KO'd, it was like surreal. It didn't, it seemed like a dream. And I remember going to the hospital, you know, all those yeah, things that, that were scary about the whole situation. And, and it was, it was definitely, you know, something that I could, I could always refer to as like the highs and the lows, you know, you can't have that high of highs without some counterbalance, you know, and that's the way I look at almost your career being a part of it, at least like more of a, a fly yeah. on the wall, you know, I seeing the progression and, you know, it's like, like a lot of, you know, the best athletes in the world, it's just day, the day comes, you know, where, where, where sure. you might not feel the same way about what you're doing, even a little bit. And you, you want to do other things and, you still are obligated to do the things what, what you're known for and things get murky. And uh, I think that was kind of maybe some of the problems that were run into there. I think what you said about the high highs and the low lows is definitely the best way to describe the lifestyle when you're under the limelight and, you know, garnering so much attention from eyeballs all around the world like Rhonda was. And, you know, as her coach and as any coach, it's never easy, you know, to watch somebody's career end in the fashion that it did. I mean, it's never easy to watch an athlete lose anytime. And then when you throw MMA into the factor, there's the danger, you know, and the, the health aspects that are at risk, you know, watching somebody get punched or kicked in the face is a whole nother world that I can only begin to understand. You know, I guess it's been 
almost four years since her last MMA fight. And she, you know, did a stint in the WWE and, you know, did really well for herself. So it seems from the outside that she's in a really comfortable place in life and she's doing well. So I'm sure as her good friend and, you know, someone who coached her, I'm sure it feels good for you to, you know, see that she's doing well. Yeah, for sure. So you've been working for a long time now with a lot of really good athletes from all the grappling disciplines, judo, wrestling, MMA, grappling, you know, submission grappling. And I know you teach a regular class over at Studio 540. So you've seen a lot of different athletes from all the different grappling disciplines. And I know you're working with a lot of high-level jiu-jitsu athletes, including people like Keenan Cornelius. I know you've been doing some work with him. What can you tell us about Keenan? I know he's a, he's an amazing athlete. He's a great jiu-jitsu practitioner. How well does he pick up judo? So he actually has a little bit of judo background. Um, not much, but enough. Where He started his training with uh, Lloyd Irvin in Virginia and you know, Lloyd is a judo black belt and had, yep. I think he had won like maybe the, the masters nationals, which, you know, it isn't, yeah. whatever, yep. but it's, it's the background. And so Keenan, you know, not formally doing judo had trained, you know, maybe a dozen or so throws for years. And with him, it's more about utilizing his length and his, what his tools could be that surround his skill set Cause he's not the strongest guy. He's not, the most um, explosive guy, but he has good timing. He understands movement. He's like a, a, a ninja and a gi, but it's like cutting through a lot of the stuff that wouldn't work. You know, like uh, he's not doing any drop sales. You know, he's doing more ashiwaza, uchimata, different techniques that could benefit with his game and length where he could end up, if he's going to sure. do a yoko tamoy, he'll be in good position for his, his, low lapel guard and all these different techniques that he's already like a master at. So, you know, I, I he, he likes me when I train him formally just because it, it adds that like aesthetic of, you know, this is the purity, the pure source of judo where, you know, it really inspired him to want to create something similar for jujitsu where he's like, you know, it doesn't have like this broken down systematic way of like the Tewazun, like all these different like subcategories and categories that all emanate from Kazushi and these simple concepts. And that's something that he geeks out on big time and loves. So I take that. Yeah. I met, I met Keenan a long time ago. I did some work with his dad. So uh, he came to our office one time and he seemed like a really good guy. And it's gotta be fun to work with somebody who's like a real student of the game. Like he really like, you know, wants to absorb, you know, everything that you've got, I'm sure. He had taken some of my classes at studio 540 and uh, I, I had a couple other high-level Octos black belts that were, were coming in cross-training. And the jiu-jitsu community is strange a little bit. I don't understand some of like the the tribal aspect of it where you know you have to train under these this roof only and or else you're exiled. But uh, so a lot of these jiu-jitsu yeah. athletes were, were given, they were granted access to be able to train judo with me even though it was at primarily a jiu-jitsu academy. So on some days, I'd have, you know, seven to ten world jujitsu phenoms on the mat learning judo. And, you know, it helped me in my jujitsu game because, you know, I'm putting myself in their shoes for some of the things okay. I'm teaching. And it kind of like helped me set myself up for, for my own jujitsu journey, so to speak, which has been fun. I mean, I think it's the most sustainable grappling discipline there is. So, I mean, Sure, sure. Yeah. I don't really understand a lot of the cultural nuances in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I think I get it. I get that they exist, but I don't understand like why they, why it's kind of this this mentality of like the Creonch and you can't train there because you're training here. I think it more represents their their business interests rather than loyalty. So, sure. so that I think it's. It's different for us judo guys because we didn't really grow up with that. And judo, it's like there's most people aren't doing it for business. So, you know, as you know, for you, you traveled all over the place. And, you know, in judo, you just kind of show yeah. up at somebody's dojo and you get welcomed with open arms no matter where you're at. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and you know, as, as I now I, I make a living off of being a coach and, and training athletes and even, you know, recreational, you know, jujitsu players and, and athletes, I, I, you know, I coach them all. I get the monetary side and how, how do I like, you know, make a living out of this because judo is such a giving sport. Sure. And, you know, the people that are asking for 
an abundance of money to, to teach judo, it's kind of frowned on. And I understand why, because just the, just the concepts laid out by Jigoro Kano and, and what judo represents is more of something to give back. And, and that's how I grew up with it too. Judo is like the, the, yeah. what got me to understand how to be a grappler in a broader sense. So I can use the, my judo philosophies and judo techniques and all that in other domains. Kind of like I kind of started out by saying it's these different paradigms that exist where it's hard to move up within, uh, a conventional wisdom thought level, so to speak, if you're with me, where, you know, in different domains, there's different conventional wisdoms and it's hard to break out and move yourself up within that bubble of understanding unless you leave it. And if you leave it and, and learn something new right. and come back to it, then, then you have something different. You could come back to a higher level and it's, it's, very similar in the business world. If you work for a company for 25 years, it's really hard to get to the top of that company. But if you jump around a little bit and go within the same field, but you go to another company and then you can even come back to that same company, you're probably going to move up levels that you wouldn't have. It's just being able to see things different right. and integrate what you learn and be able to, to use that to, to pass on that knowledge in a different way rather than like slowly but steadily working your way up within a and understand a, a paradigm, you can actually get further faster by moving outside of it and looking at the paradigm you came from, you know, separate yourself from the forest as a tree and look at it differently. And that's what I feel I did with Gito. And it actually afforded me those opportunities because I wasn't so bogged down and, okay, I'm going to coach my club and that's what I'm going to do, which I've, my whole life I wanted a Gito club. I, I want nothing more. That's what, that's my future. But right. I just put that on hold because I think you know, there was other opportunities afforded or given to me or I earned going outside of that bubble. But, you know, within that yeah. time frame, I was asked to be, you know, at the time, the head coach of the U.S. world team in 2017. After taking hmm, six years out of the sport, seven years, without doing much, you know, as far as like daily grind, building athletes, building a club, having my club create champions that are now on the team, I, I, you know, I kind of was able to kind of cut the line a little bit and not that I, I know less sure. because of it. I think it, it helped me become more well-rounded and see, you know, not think of myself as an athlete, especially, you know, that's the biggest part as a coach. It's hard to separate yourself from, okay, I'm on the mat for others. So, you know, it's not about me here. Let's let the ego leave it at the door and have whatever athletes and whatever discipline I'm working with grow. And if that's, that means taking some balls or giving them some submissions or getting out of position so they win, because that's going to help them, that's what it is. Or sometimes it is giving them, you know, the business. So being able to juggle those dependent on where they are in, you know, before their, their matches or their fights, being able to kind of understand that, you know, from my athlete, when I was an athlete, I know that, you know, I'm cutting weight. I don't need anyone trying to, to kick my ass. I just need to get this movement in so I'm sweating and I'm feeling sharp. And doing all those little things that I remember as an right. athlete, and I didn't have a lot of help, you know, sometimes, you know. One of my coaches would mostly get me to go get him Snickers bars in the middle of the night, you know. So I didn't have someone that was, like, really <laughs> guiding me and trying to, you know, at some point, yes. But that's what I try and refer back to, like, because I know these athletes don't have a lot of help. Yeah. especially the ones right now in the U.S., the ones that are, are competing on the tour, especially right. the, the four or five that have a real shot at qualifying for the, the 2021 Olympics. I feel like, you know, it's hard. It's hard to keep everyone happy, the people that are paying for their trips, the people that are, are sponsoring their life. They, they owe them a debt, and it's hard for them to, to shut them out to maybe get the best training they need. So after a lifetime of traveling the world and chasing medals while following his judo dreams, Justin has found a way to earn a living being a professional judo coach. Not in the sense that most of us are accustomed to. He's found success bridging the gap by taking judo outside of the dojo and into the gym. His goal of spreading judo to other domains and challenging some of the conventional wisdom while meshing his skills with other disciplines has proven to be a huge success. In addition to his work with all of the professional athletes he's currently working with, his first love of judo always finds a way to pull him back. 
He has a true passion and ambition for working with today's judo athletes, hoping his experience and guidance can foster success as they pursue their own judo journey. In the next segment, we will talk about peak performance and some of the scientific approaches to training that may be missing with our amateur athletes. We will discuss a few of the disadvantages and challenges facing our national judo team, and then we will talk about the upcoming Olympic Games, the Olympic Games in Los Angeles, that is, and why the American judo community should put all of its resources to work on 2028 when the Olympic flame returns to U.S. soil. So I got a few more things I wanted to get to before we finish up here today. A few topics that I would love to get your insight on when it pertains to athlete development and peak performance. I spend a lot of time with Aton Gelber, who's a huge source of knowledge when it comes to you know, athlete preparation. And I wanted to see if there was something you know from your experience that judo could learn when compared to MMA. It seems from the outside, again, I don't have any experience working with MMA teams, but they spend a lot of their focus, you know, working on eight-week or possibly 12-week training camps leading up to a big fight. And that's something that judo players, we can't really do because we're always trying to, you know, fight year-round for the most part. And obviously, we have to pick and choose as, you know, judo players or even wrestlers with which events we're going to peak for and which ones we're going to train through. And I don't think MMA has that issue since most of the fighters seem like they fight two or three, maybe four times per year. But anyway, I just wanted to see if, uh, you know, if you had any opinions or is there anything that judo can learn when it comes to preparation for an event when compared to how these professional MMA fighters are getting things done today? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many variables involved. But generally speaking, I think a little bit stone age to to take an eight to 12, especially 12 week camp and try and cram everything you can into that to be at your optimal self. I think, I think that mentality, uh, it's hard to function at your highest level. If you put the pressure on yourself nonstop, sure. You know, that's going to create a diamond, all that pressure. But I think physically, physically, you're not going to be at your best. If, if you take that same eight to 12 weeks and you, you treat each section of it as, you know, the first phase is get in shape, you know, strength and conditioning, you, uh, get on a diet, make sure your, your levels, because now, I mean, professional sports, that's the big thing I've noticed different from coaching Dominic Cruz, Captain Donna, Ronda Rousey, Jessica Penne, uh, I could go on, but all of them, you know, take this scientific approach with it where, you know, hormone levels, uh, blood levels, everything in professional sports compared to judo amateur level sports where, you know, you're just trying to train, make weight, travel, next event, let's go. Uh, it's, it's much more broken down. So you're some days, you know, if you're getting your levels checked and, and you're not, you know, your low blood sugar, whatever, just take that day off. You know, like, you don't want to go grind, grind it out and get hurt because you're just lethargic and you're overtrained. And those are things in judo, as you know, you've trained through that. You compete through it because you you spent whatever you're going for four weeks to Europe. You have to compete. Right. You and I probably did this with blinders on most of our career. Like, I don't know why I'm not feeling good today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like, it's much more laid out for you in a way in, in that I've noticed with the athletes I work with now. When I first started weightlifting, it's like, we'll take a fight on one week notice because it's amateur and they don't even do like, you know, blood tests. It's just, you know, smoker, they call them. But now, you know, the opposite. It's funny how in the last 20 years, things have changed so much with MMA. Obviously, MMA is more established now, but like in the late 90s, there's the American Kickboxing Academy in San Jose that's produced, you know, tons of good fighters, obviously. But in the early days, MMA was still kind of like underground, you know, like UFC was kind of just getting, you know, it was yeah. like the mid 90s, I guess, when I was in college. And some of the guys from AK, you know, through like Mike Swain, they were like, hey, you guys got any bodies? And, you know, like my buddy Mike Barnes and a couple of other friends, they actually would just like show up at AK just to be like partners for these guys because they just didn't really know <laughs> what was going on. And, and and back then, like judo was the more organized training system and the MMA guys were just kind of, they're just fighting, you know? And then, you know, here we are 20 years later and they've got yeah. the scientific approach and there's obviously money involved and money makes the world go around as we know. So like there's a lot of things that, 
as amateur judo players, we don't have. But for you and I, I feel like also that was part of our disadvantage on an international level because I think that we were up against that sort of training, you know, versus, you know, the Russians or some of the French or the Japanese that had a little bit more, you know, money behind them. To get back to that, yeah, like you're going against governing bodies of countries that that have a system in place from a young age that will help develop and foster champions. So, you know, it's not like, I think the talent in the U.S., especially when we were growing up and even moving forward, uh, the talent level of uh, uh, youth judo was is up there with uh, this level with the world, the best in the world. Right. So something happens in that developmental stage for other countries in, in Europe and Asia, I could get more specific, but I'm just being general, that they have a system in place where, okay, you're, you're fast, you're going to be in track, you're uh, nimble and can tumble well, you're going to be a gymnast, you have a fighter's spirit, you're going to be a judo guy. almost hand-picked these athletes, and I don't want to make this about politics or, or political, especially in this climate, but you know, a lot of these socialized countries, it just it works into their economic system. They have a lottery or they have some funding that's uh, built into their economic system that, that helps pay for this and helps, you know, develop judo right. specifically. So having us against them, you know, sure, there's going to be some blips on the radar that, you know, that win from here. But if you, if you crunch the numbers and break down the stack, they have a much more advantageous, upbringing to become successful in tournaments for you know, sure sure like you and me can go out there and beat one of them or two of them on a day but then the next week those one or two we beat win the tournament so right. it's like just another event for them that they've done for the last 12 years but for us we're just in and out you know so but you know there's exceptions we've, we've been to europe for months on and i'm sure you have i have and, you know getting to try and like become part of that and integrate and almost assimilate it's hard yeah. to like go to Japan and try and be Japanese player or go to Europe and, and be that. Like you almost have to find your own footing and then Yeah, sorry. So with USA Judo, I know you've you've been, you know, volunteering and helping with USA Judo as far as coaching over the last few years. Um and we know that that all comes with its own challenges, but do you see anything like anything obvious? I mean, not to get uh again back to politics. I know that we're lacking in many ways, but you know, what kind of, you know, things could judo do here in the United States? You know, what, what is it that our top guys are missing, like in a general sense? I mean, there, there's, I mean, I guess if we just look at the IJF roster right now, what is there like four or five people that are kind of in the running for the 2020 Olympics, which is yeah. pushed back. Um, first off, do you know if they've finalized the way they're going to pick that team? No, I mean, I've heard some rumors. There's, there's just kind of conjecture at this point. Um, I'm privy to a little bit of information, but it's nothing that's like, you know, going to kind of like change the way anyone's operating at this moment sure. with COVID-19. Yeah. So um, they're going to have events, most likely a couple more to to help the qualification for the, the next year. So anyone who's too far out, it's really going to be tough because they're not going to have many qualifying events, no matter what. So. I mean, I've heard some rumors that they might not, you know, do anyone flying overseas. So events will be more regional, but they'll have the same weight. But who knows? Who knows? I really don't know how it's going to go. So, um, but as far as like a American judo, USA judo, what can we do? Nothing really in the meantime, but generally speaking in the way that, you know, if things were running optimal, there was no pandemic. I would say having more regional camps, regional training centers, kind of because the U.S. is so detached and spread out that it's hard to get everyone together frequently enough to to make a difference. You know, sure, we, we do a Pan Am and a World Team camp for a week before those two tournaments every year. And it's even hard enough to get everyone together to that, to get the coaches from all the different dojos to, to let go of their player for a week to train for the Worlds together. So there's a lot of egos involved. Sure. And it's difficult, and I'm, I'm I try to be as not threatening as possible. As, uh, I'm going to steal a player or anything like that. It's trying to, to get everyone together, not just for like your own technical and to be in the shape, but to actually, you know, 
be around each other and 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 push each other and look at the leaders like before you know that 2017 team was like Marty was team captain Colton uh, uh, rest in peace Jack Hatton these players that were you know kind of a, a cut above as leaders right both on the mat and 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 leading by example off the mat was kind of the approach I would like to take to have players come together more but with so many events so spread out around the world it's difficult to get people together and that's just the reality of the situation yeah i think that that's always been a reality that we've struggled with and that's why you know the cost goes up we're just geographically we're so removed from the you know the judo epicenters of the world but what i've always thought like especially right now like the olympic games are happening in los angeles in 2028 and that's huge for for one thing those of you that don't know We'll get a full team. The Americans will get a full team. So for me, if I was running things right now, I'm not running things, you should be looking at your 13 to 17-year-olds. So in the United States, we actually still have a good amount of players in that, you know, call it 12-year-old to 17-year-old division. Those divisions at the junior nationals are actually the biggest divisions. So those are your kids that are going to be your possible team for 2028. So right now, I know Jimmy and and Travis and these guys have the project 2024. I mean, not to doubt anybody, but I think that as Americans, we need a longer plan. 2024 is not that far away. I think you focus on 2028 and you do something, back to what you said, the regional training camps, but you have to do something to keep all of these kids between the ages of 12 and 17, maybe 12 and 19, whatever it is, but you basically have eight years to prepare that team. And and you have the biggest numbers in that age group right now. And unfortunately, we start to lose them. So if we have any funding, the limited amount of funding it might be, you throw all of it into that age group right now because LA is your chance. That's our chance. I agree with you. I mean, that was my first introduction. As I know, you were actually at the 84 Olympic Games, but that was like the first introduction I had to judo was the 84 Olympics. And that was my Bible. I could still recite how every match was won and the names of all the players from each weight class just because that was like my template of how judo is performed on an international stage. And I just remember how, how like vivid those memories were and are still. And I really have like a sense of nostalgia towards it. And that's going to happen again, which it is nothing more than to have that be like a tent pool event and have it be or, or, or gauged to, to set, a goal towards, like you said, and have our 13 to, to 17 be included in that and not just included in it, but like told that they could be, you know, the next Teddy Reiner or the next variability or whoever that, you know, the goal is. And it's attainable. I mean, it's a, a local event for one, but there's enough time to really build. And that's something that, you know, moving forward after this squad. I would like to be more involved in the decision-making process. Right now, I'm just giving kind of marching orders and I volunteer my time and I show up to the event. And yeah, I, I build those connections with the athletes and I, I try and do my best in that moment, but I'm not part of any decision-making process, uh, process. Yeah, from a political standpoint, I just think that this is this is our chance. You know, one is it's not time to start, you know, saving money. I think you got to spend the money that we have. I know it's limited, but you have to focus on those young kids and see what you can do. Because the, the truth is also is that after the 2028 Olympics, yeah, there's a good chance that we do get more funding. Because typically, you know, when you host the Olympics, there's going to be a lot of funding for all the NJBs for all the different sports. I think USA Judo still pretty much lives on the money they made from 1984. You know, so there's a possibility that money could be replenished. No, I don't, I don't say that as a joke. They were given a big chunk of money after the 84 Olympics. And that money was, you know, sitting around in, you know, earning interest. I mean, I think a lot of it's been blown to my knowledge, but, um, you know, that money could be replenished. But 2028 is the chance if we're going to do something big in judo in America, that's that's when it, that that's what it is. It's it's 2028. We have to start now. I'm with you, man. I really, you know, tell me as the coach Justin Flores, could you envision? And what would you feel like and, and, and what an honor would it be for you to walk into the Poly Pavilion at UCLA in 2028, coaching a team of young kids that you worked with that have a chance to medal? Oh, man, that's the dream. It's just being able to balance that with raising kids and having a, a family and the travel that's correlated with all the building those athletes. You know, I felt 
the burden many times having a son, not burden, I mean, the, being abroad while great moments are happening, you know, like in my son's life. And I don't sure. want that to take hold and be the next 15, 10 years of my life. And it has to be done with a level of moderation for me. I really, I even mean that I don't like going to go corner fighters in MMA. Coaching on game day isn't as uh, fruitful um, as of a, of a payoff as the, the actually body of work that gets done. To me, to me, it's the, the body sure. of work building the players. So I would love to be a part of that, you know, to, to, more so than just being in the chair, to be honest. At the, at, yeah, but that's the game plan that USA Judo, as as a country, needs to get on board and find out, you know, who are the people around the country that can can make a difference in our kids? Um, who's available? Not just who's available, but who's available and has the knowledge. And you're one of those guys. You know, there, we, there, there's a few people around the country that have the desire and they have the skill set to actually make a difference. And it's not just the kids that need to be identified, but like, I don't want to see the 2028 team come around. And there's a bunch of guys, you know, sitting at dinner going, hey, who should we make the coach? Like, that that's a failed attempt. <laughs> you know, we, oh, man, you're more, you're more right on. Than we've got to identify the coach early. We've got to prepare. And, you know, the way I see it is that we have eight years to, to possibly make an impact in judo that, you know, and, and it's hard, you know. Kayla Harrison went out and won two gold medals. And the unfortunate side of somebody like Kayla winning two gold medals is that the general public thinks it's easy. You know, you say, ah, oh, she's got two gold medals. You know, I have that with, with Mike Swain, you know, cause I, I, I hung out with Mike over the years a lot and, you know, I meet people and they say, well, he went to the Olympics four times. I think their assumption is like, well, it must not be that hard to do then. Like, you know, the, the, the international sport of judo is hard and it requires a lot of sacrifice and, you know, you, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but. Um, I think that there's some things that yeah. we can do as a country that, you know, can can set us up to be in a better place in eight years from now. You know, you just even triggering my thought process now by bringing that up. That's a great question about 2028 and what's happening now. Those are things I'm going to think about more. I mean, I really, as you know, as a parent and, man, you know, sometimes I just feel like I'm running on momentum. Like, okay, today's today. Like, I got to do these 30 things. Uh, okay, tomorrow. <laughs> I I completely get it, man. I got three boys, and like it, it you know, we the days don't last forever, man. But you, we, I think that we can do this. And even for you, being in Southern California, you know, there's a strong oh, yeah. junior population of judo. And if if somebody even just focused on that area alone, maybe you know, back to what you were saying about having it regionalized. It's got to be regionalized, but uh, you know, but organized as well. So. You know, whether you are assigned to like a Southern California region where it doesn't require you flying across the country, but, you know, hooking up with the guys, I don't know, the guys of the kids, you know, you know, meeting with these guys on a regular basis, you know, flying in to a camp like two times a year. I mean, it sounds great, but no. it's not going to make an impact. It's not going to make a meaningful impact, in my opinion. You've got to have somebody like yourself that's knowledgeable, that's that's with these guys more often. Maybe it's once a month. Maybe it's twice a month, but it's, you know, it's just a couple hour drive for me to hit Los Angeles and, and get in touch with a pretty good group of young kids and, and, you know, feed them the ambition that they're going to need to still be around to be contenders yeah, in eight years from now. I, mean, I had, uh, something along those lines with the athletes that are in play now where I had, uh, there was money for it at the time. So I had, uh, Nathalie Papadakis, LA Smith and Jack Hatton come out for, for a week. Uh, this was about a year ago now. This was right before Montreal, the, the Grand Prix that was uh, last summer. And right before that was the Pan Ams, and right before that was the Pan Am camp. So there was like a, and then the world right about a, a three weeks later. So there was like a two or three month period where I was around the athletes for, you know, five weeks, it felt like, four weeks. And um, we were building. And, um, it was going to be a continual thing where I was going to have lightweights come in and heavyweights come in. It was kind of a, a planned thing that there was, there was money being set up for. And it was like, it felt pretty gratifying to be able to like make, you know, help these athletes get PT. We're going to do morning technical. We're going to change things up and do some things on the beach for grips. We're going to get a different venue. We're going to go to 540 and do a jujitsu class. We're going to do so just to kind of like corral them and, and 
and get to know them better and see them train more and, and repeat that process. And that was something that was going to continue, but it just kind of fizzled out and there were some reasons for that. But I mean, I, I would love nothing more. And I wish I was, I know I don't want to go back to the money thing, but if there was enough money, it would be there. I, I would be able to, to create that. Yeah, I mean, that's for sure. But like, if this goes back to what we were talking about in the early part of this conversation about having a coach, you know, for you growing up, you had your father there and, and even the confidence that your brother gave you as a competitor, you know, some, somebody, you know, that is there for a long time, it, it's meaningful, you know, and look at the people that we competed against. I mean, you know, now, and you recognize, and you've become friends with a lot of coaches yeah. from international teams. Don't you find it interesting that a lot of these people have been around for 10, 15, 20 years? They've been the national coach of their team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, was, it never stopped. They were groomed. They were groomed. It's not uncommon. And yeah, I mean, uh, but we've we've always lacked that in USA Judo for the last you know ever since I've been around. I'm pretty sure it was before I was around. You know, there's just coaches coming and going, and there's never this. So I think that there's you know something that we can improve on. And you know, I know money is uh, always the issue at hand, but um, I think now's the time to invest. And you know, maybe somebody will listen to this podcast and and realize that they need to uh, reach out and and make a database. I mean, you can start with a database and realize you know exactly how many 13 to 17-year-olds you have doing judo in the country right now. That's a pretty easy number to figure out and make them feel special. Even if the kid's number 10, make that number 10 player feel special. Give them a certificate. You've qualified to be the top 10, which means you're qualified to go to these regional events. You've got to do something to make these kids special so they stick around. So we have the competition required. You know, it's never going to be the best if it's easy to make a team. You have one guy that's constantly just trying to make the Mm -hmm. team and there's nobody else behind him. The best years in USA Judo was when the divisions were deep. There was somebody at home that could beat you. And the Japanese have that, right? The Japanese are winning internationally, but they can barely hold their own spots nationally. And that's what keeps them striving. True. Depth is the key. And that's, I mean, I've been involved in conversations about the inner workings of what's going on with USA Judo. And most of this last quad was about kind of getting back to even and, and the books as far as being in bed and trying to be able to like even things out. So apparently that happened, you know, within the last few years, but it's like, now what? Okay. Now, you know, the last well, uh, Jose Rodriguez, there was all sorts of turmoil, a lot of debt. Um, so I, I really am not too privy to all the, the things that this administration has done. To, to get things back to like, you know, at least financial uh, equilibrium. But uh, I, I don't know. Well, the unfortunate part about that is that no. COVID yeah. didn't help. And that's going to, you know, that's going to hurt in a, in a big way. But, you know, we, we can't give up. I mean, I'm like, I'm like you, I'm a, I'm a lifelong judo practitioner. Um, and I'm similar to what you're talking about. You know, you have kids at home. I had the same thing. I kind of, I stopped traveling a long time ago and, but I, I still have my world of judo, which is locally. If I can, if I can play a part to build that number of thirteen to seventeen-year-old kids that are still ambitious for judo, that's where I'm at right now. You know, if I have a kid that becomes one of those contenders in 2028, awesome! I, I would love it. I would, I would love nothing more in the world. But right now, my job is to just focus on my own club. And I think if everyone focused on their own club and built their club to be as big and strong as possible those numbers are going to become natural. It's like, it's like in anything, it's like in sales, you build a big pyramid, the bigger your base, you know, the higher it's going to pop at the top. And that's what judo needs to do as a whole. We just need to focus on every little club. If every club would just do a little bit better job of running their judo clubs, USA judo can double its membership in in two or three years without a problem. So from a grassroots perspective, yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like, I think everyone looks back at like a, a golden age, no matter what, you know, like when, when we were younger, there was so much more competition, but there really was like, there really was. I remember going to the junior nationals and having 60 kids in my division, you know, and now you're, you're lucky to get 16. So yeah, so uh, there's a lot we could probably talk about on our, on uh, this, if we do this again. Yeah, we'll have to do a, a yeah. another session for this for sure because I think there's a lot of things that we can talk about. And for me, hey, this this uh, yeah. this could be my outlet. You know, I'm not the probably not the guy that's going to make the difference because I'm focused locally in my own club and raising my own kids. But if I can spark the interest of of USA Judo to you know rethink the way they're doing things and 
you know, work with all the people in the country that that are willing to help and that want to make a difference. I think that as a country, you know, we could prosper and become a good judo country. It's not going to happen in the next two years. It's probably not going to happen in the next four to six years. But I think in the next eight to 10 years, I think that we could, with the right decisions, you know, be a strong judo country, but it's, it's going to take a lot of work. I mean, just like we kind of come full circle here, like being able to get outside of something enough to be able to analyze it and see it for what it is rather than being bogged down by being inside of a system. Like you being on the outside, doing your own thing, you could see a little bit better with more clarity what's going on because obviously the results aren't great. Uh, so things can get better, but how? And, and you being not dependent on the system because you're not inside of it, it's really a breath of fresh air because you're going to have a, maybe a different uh, perspective that is not shared with people on the inside. Sure. I'm not saying I'm on the inside. I'm sure I'm one of the coaches for USA Judo, but, you know, that's six weekends a year. Well, we got to do sure, something Chuck. to make a change, buddy. I think that, uh, man, it's it's been a pleasure, man. I, I, I could talk your ear off. I think the <laughs> two of us yeah. can probably go forever, but it's been yeah. super awesome to... Uh, get this recorded and you know one day we're going to look back and enjoy this conversation that we've had because we used to have these kind of conversations a lot you know because we could sit on an airplane for 10 hours together sit in front of grandes <laughs> i missed yeah. it dude. Uh, grandes having That's a cold right. one after a hard pack to beat yeah. each other up yeah so justin it's been a pleasure man uh we're going to definitely do this again i want to wish you the best of luck with um all of your athletes you're working with right now and enjoy every Thank moment you. with the, the kids and i know you've got a new one on the way and I wish you and your family the best, yeah. and uh, I look forward to uh, having some more conversations in the future. Thank you, Chuck. It's been a pleasure. I really miss these conversations as well, man. I'm excited to do it, and thankful that you gave me the opportunity, brother. All right, man. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for listening to JudoCast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. For show notes and additional content, visit JudoCast.com. That's J-U-D-O-Cast.com.